Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this episode number 15 on acute coronary syndromes, we have with us Dr. Eric Latofsky, Dr. Mark Menser, and Dr. Neil Pham. Dr. Latofsky is an emergency physician at the Credit Valley Hospital in Mississauga, Ontario, where he's the chief of the emergency department. He's the director of the Division of Emergency Medicine in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Toronto, where he's a full professor in the Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Menser practices emergency medicine and anesthesiology at the Huntsville District Memorial Hospital and South Muskoka Memorial Hospitals, and is an assistant professor of emergency medicine for the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. He's the co-founder of the Evidence-Based Resuscitation and Focus ED Stenography Courses. Dr. Neil Pham is an interventional cardiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's a director of the coronary care unit and an assistant professor and clinical teacher in the Division of Cardiology at the University of Toronto. The past 30 years has seen an incredible advancement in the management of ACS with hugely improved outcomes that the medical community should really be proud of. It's hard to believe that in my lifetime, we've gone from using the liver enzyme AST as the only cardiac biomarker and having only ASA, nitro, beta blockers, and morphine to treat ACS to today's cutting edge workup and management. On the other hand, in Canada, we're still missing between 0.8 and 8% of acute coronary syndromes, depending on where you work. And there's still areas in the management of chest pain and ACS patient that remain very challenging. For example, which chest pain patients in the ED need a workup? Which chest pain patients with a normal ECG and one or two sets of troponins need further workup? And what should that workup be? For the practicing EM doc, there's an overwhelming amount of literature when it comes to ACS that's sometimes contradictory, often supported by industry, and having variable quality that makes decision-making in the ED sometimes really difficult. Take anticoagulants, for example. Should we be using IV unfractionated heparin or low molecular rate heparin or fondaparinox in the non-STEMI patient? In this episode, with the help of two returning experts to EMC, Dr. Latofsky, who's been giving talks on ED management of ACS for more than 20 years, and Dr. Menser, who sits on the ACLS Advisory Committee for the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and a new expert to EMC, Dr. Neil Pham, who's an interventional cardiologist. He's been instrumental in developing a citywide emergency STEMI protocol in Toronto. With the help of these guys, we'll cover all the pearls and controversies of ACS, from ECG interpretation to risk stratifying low-risk patients to which meds to consider in which situations, and when lytics versus PCI should be considered. So without further ado, let's get into talking about ACS. Let's jump into case number one. The first case is a 45-year-old man who presents to your ED with a six-hour history of pleuritic chest pain that started abruptly while he was driving to work. The pain is retrosternal, described as sharp, and radiates to both shoulders. There's no aggravating or relieving factors. He does admit to shortness of breath and sweating associated with the chest pain, but no nausea, dizziness, or syncope. There was no history of antecedent viral illness, no cough, and no fever. He denies any leg swelling or pain, abdominal pain, or neurologic symptoms. Past medical history includes lupus, for which he has been on prednisone intermittently for years. He has no traditional cardiac risk factors, thromboembolic risk factors, or aortic dissection risk factors. He did have a treadmill test a month ago after an episode of vague chest pain, which was reported as negative. So 
Dr. Lutovsky, before we jump into this case, can you give us your general approach to patients who present to the emergency department with chest pain? What are the kinds of things you're thinking of and how do you approach them? So chest pain is one of the most common symptoms that we see in the emergency department and your job as an emergency physician is to rule out life-threatening diseases. Myocardial infarction, pulmonary embolism, aortic dissection, Boerhaave syndrome are kind of the big diseases that you don't want to miss in the emergency department. Pericarditis is another disease that you don't want to miss in the emergency department, although it's not as life-threatening as the previous diseases that I mentioned. So the key to assessing chest pain in the emergency department is taking a good history, doing a proper physical examination, and then obviously getting an ECG as quickly as possible, optimally within 10 minutes of the patient walking in the front door. In this case, you've got a 45-year-old man who presents with lupus. What are the kinds of things you're thinking about? Well, patients with lupus, obviously they're at risk for myocardial infarction, as are other autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, but he's also at risk for pericarditis as well. So you're telling me his pain is pteritic. It certainly suggests to you that you know, perhaps you know, this gentleman has pericarditis. You could have just musculoskeletal disease as well. But if it truly is pleuritic, it certainly suggest, you know, makes you wonder if he's got a pericarditis. Okay. That leads us nicely into a discussion about atypical presentations of ACS. For example, about 7 to 10% of patients who present with ACS actually have pleuritic chest pain. So let's talk a little bit more about atypical presentations. One of the common pitfalls is in assessing patients with ACS is over-reliance on the classic presentation of chest pain for the diagnosis. What does the literature say, Dr. Menser, about how ACS presents in the real world? I think the literature gives us a better indication of what we should expect in the emergency department setting in that uh, atypical presentations are in fact more typical. And um, although we commonly expect people to present with retrosternal chest pain with radiation to the left arm, as an example, there's many people that present uh, outside of those uh, usual parameters. So they might present with an anginal equivalent, as an example, so shortness of breath. They might present with weakness. They might present with dizziness or syncope, presyncope. In fact, about one-third of patients with ACS will present with no chest pain at all. Risk factors for ACS presenting with no chest pain are the patient being elderly, female, having diabetes, or a history of CVA or CHF. Patients greater than 85 years old are more likely to present with shortness of breath than they are with chest pain. The most frequent anginal equivalents, which Dr. Menser mentioned, are shortness of breath, weakness, unusual fatigue, sweating, and dizziness. Non-chest pain ACS patients are more likely to have delay in care, which leads to increased in-hospital, 30-day, and one-year mortality. Because elderly and diabetics with shortness of breath can often be ACS, these patients should get an ECG within 10 minutes of arrival in the emergency department, just like chest pain patients do. Let's talk a little bit about the, the pain of ischemia itself. Another pitfall in the initial assessment of the chest pain patient in the ED is ruling out ACS based on certain signs and symptoms like pleuritic or positional or reproducible pain. What words of caution can you tell our listeners about ruling out ACS based on the history and physical alone? In terms of the pain itself, the pain can be described in any way. Obviously, Harrison's will describe the classical pain being crushing, retrosternal, but in fact, just as many patients use the words burning as they do crushing retrosternal, and patients use the word sharp and piercing as well. So it's important to understand that pain can be described in any way. 
In fact, the most common misdiagnosis in acute myocardial infarction is esophagitis or gastritis. And that's because a lot of people use the word burning and they get misdiagnosis, having gastritis or esophagitis. So the pain can be described in a myriad of fashions. I think it's important to also look for the three most common associated symptoms with acute myocardial infarction, which are nausea, shortness of breath, and diaphoresis. Diaphoresis, yeah. In that uh, recent resuscitation article, they were talking about how emergency physician-observed diaphoresis has the highest likelihood ratio of any associated symptom in, in ACS. Correct. You know, the radiation of pain, I think, is important. The pain that patients who present with pain radiating up to the jaws worry me. And uh, even though we always ask about pain raining down the left arm, in fact, pain that radiates down into the right arm has a greater specificity for MI than pain that radiates down the left arm. There was an eye-opening article out of resuscitation recently that looked at the most predictive signs and symptoms of MI. It found that the most predictive signs and symptoms in order of importance are first, ED doctor-observed sweating, second, vomiting, third, radiation to both arms, and fourth, radiation to the right arm. They looked at rest pain and radiation to the left arm, and they didn't increase the likelihood of MI at all, which was very surprising. What I tell the residents is if there's any kind of symptom between here and here, which is neck and diaphragm, you have to think about it. And unfortunately, none of our tests are actually all that accurate. It's interesting to hear some of the emergency literature about symptoms and specificity. We always say in cardiology that it always comes down to the history, and we do look for the classic symptoms, but if we don't elicit the classic symptoms, and there are all these atypical symptoms, then often those are the patients, if they have many risk factors and pretest pelvic is high, that we will, that you'll consult us and we may admit. Next, Dr. Latofsky is going to talk about the degree to whether medications that we give in the ED for people with chest pain help to predict the likelihood of MI or not. Dr. Latofsky, you mentioned that the pain can often present as a burning, described as burning, and it's often misdiagnosed as GERD or esophagitis or gastritis. Correct. That brings up the question in terms of giving medications to help you decrease or increase your pretest probability of ACS in the emergency department. Do you ever use pink ladies in the emergency department to help you decide whether a patient has ACS or not, or do you use it for any other in any other situation? There is absolutely no role for the use of a pink lady to try to distinguish between acute coronary syndrome and esophagitis. There is absolutely no role. In fact, I would suggest that relying on what happens with a pink lady is fraught with hazard and will only make you a medical legal statistic. Uh, listen, if you give 10 patients who have an acute myocardial infarction arsenic, two will feel better. So, the, you know, if you give somebody a pink lady and they feel a little bit better, it absolutely does not confirm a diagnosis of esophagitis and absolutely does not rule out acute coronary syndrome. And the corollary is to, to us for nitroglycerin. You know, giving somebody nitro and asking them if they feel better and if, if they say yes, that, that in itself does not confirm a diagnosis of ACS. Uh, so using either nitroglycerin or a pink lady to either rule out or rule in acute coronary syndrome is fraught with hazard and should be discouraged. My advice to people, if they are thinking about giving someone a pink lady in the emergency department to rule in or rule out myocardial infarction, my advice to them is to give it to themselves. 
<laughs> There's a lot of patients who are discharged from the emergency department with anxiety who end up coming back and ruling in for an MI. It's wrong to make assumptions in the emergency department that someone's symptoms or symptomatology are due entirely to anxiety just the, based on the way they appear. Because let's face it, you know, if you have chest pain and you're worried that you've got a heart attack, you are going to feel anxious. You are, you are going to be nervous about the presentation. So I think it's important not to make uh, a, a rash assessment in the emergency department of anxiety or a rash diagnosis of, of anxiety precipitating the pain because that's, you know, that's a, that's a very dangerous assumption. So particularly, particularly in women with atypical symptoms who have no risk factors. And those are the ones who we commonly will say diagnosis is anxiety and discharge home. In relation to anxiety causing chest pain, here's a bit of cardiac trivia. It's called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy. Well, what the hell is Takatsubo cardiomyopathy? Takatsubo cardiomyopathy is chest pain in the setting of a recent emotional event plus an ECG diagnostic for acute anterior MI with a normal angiogram. The sine qua non is the appearance of the LV ballooning seen during the left ventricular gram, which looks like the pots that Japanese fishermen use to catch octopus. These pots are called takatsubo. Classically, this syndrome occurs after a stressful event such as bereavement, and so some people call it the broken heart syndrome. In the ED, you need to treat these patients just like an anterior MI, and the diagnosis is only made during angiography. The good news is that most of these patients normalize their ECG and their LV function within three months. So, putting that trivia aside, remember that precipitating events like eating or an emotional event should not lead you away from the diagnosis of ACS in patients who present to the ED with chest pain or an anginal equivalent. Despite the fact that the HPI is the most important element of the history when it comes to ruling in or out ACS, there are some important things to know about risk factors for ACS that can help to increase or decrease your pretest probability of ACS. First, what does the literature tell us about how useful the traditional risk factors are, namely smoking, family history of premature MI, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, and obesity? How good are they in predicting ACS in the patient standing in front of you in the emergency department, as opposed to how good they are at predicting over the course of their entire life their risk for coronary artery disease? Yeah, I think in the, in the acute setting, having risk factors will increase your pretest probability in, in uh, diagnosis, but it will not help you make a diagnosis. It comes down to the history physical examination, investigation, particularly ECG and, and cardiac enzymes. I think uh, all of those risk factors you're describing, which incorporated in the Framingham Risk Score, predict 10-year risk or 20-year risk of events and are less helpful in the ER. Now, personally, if I see someone who's got multiple risk factors, my radar will be much higher. I'll be much more concerned about that patient than if they have zero risk factors. But as you said, uh, atypical presentations and people who only a family history and no other risk factors should give you some cause for concern. The risk factors are important epidemiologically and for primary prevention. But, you know, when you have a 50-year-old in front of you with chest pain, you've got to worry that they have acute coronary syndrome regardless of whether they have a history of diabetes, hypertension or not. I mean, you're still, your job is still going to rule out acute coronary syndrome whether they have a risk factor or not. So for the individual patient, actually, the risk factors are not nearly as important as for primary care, 
uh, epidemiological issues. So you, you're still going to rule out acute coronary syndrome. Plus, it's quite calm enough. They are admitted. You check their cholesterol; it's high. They've got you know high blood sugar as well. So they have diabetes. They have hyperlipidemia. Their blood pressure is higher than they thought. They have risk factors. They just don't right. know they have them. Correct. Right. Especially yes. at St. Mike's. Yes. <laughs> Overall, in the ED, cardiac risk factors are poor predictors of risk of ACS. Diabetes and a positive family history in male patients are the only traditional risk factors that have predictive value for ACS in the chest pain patient, whereas the other risk factors are only prognostic. Even diabetes and a positive family history in male patients only confer a two-fold increased risk for acute ischemia, which is far less than the relative risk of a compelling history or ECG abnormality. The exception is in patients less than 40 years old, where the absence of all traditional risk factors make the pretest probability of ACS very low, and the presence of more than four traditional risk factors is only useful for patients under the age of 40. So as Dr. Lutovsky said, for the vast majority of patients, meaning all those over the age of 40, you should be working up patients for ACS with a good story, even in the absence of traditional risk factors. Let's talk a little bit about the non-traditional risk factors of ACS. You know, I've seen a handful at least of patients in their 20s and 30s with MIs in my career, and the literature shows that a good 5 to 10% of MIs occur in patients under 40. What are some of the non-traditional risk factors that we should be looking out for in patients, especially young patients who present with chest pain who we might be wondering about ACS? The first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, if I see a young person with severe chest pain, the first thing that I ask about is whether they've got any cocaine. I mean, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Very other things come to my mind as quickly. But a young person, severe chest pain, I say, have you been using cocaine? Because, uh, you, you know, the, the, the assessment of patients who've, who've done cocaine with chest pain is different. The treatment of patients with chest pain and patients who've done cocaine is different. And, uh, you know, it's a very different disease, obviously. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Young person, chest pain, have you done cocaine? The other populations, I think, uh, of concern in that young population or old population would be things like HIV on particular uh, medications. So the protease inhibitors, those patients that are on chronic steroids. Uh, and so those patients, again, uh, might uh, be cause for concern. And uh, again, this patient, your original uh, lupus patient, obviously, again, cause for concern because their risk is a magnitude of 50 times greater if they have lupus in their history. So um, I, I think those are uh, certainly pa patients with that are pregnant as well. I mean, I think yeah. you have to be concerned about as well. And, and the although we're talking about acute coronary syndromes today, I see a young person in the emergency department with chest pain. You know, I, I look at their morphology. If they are tall and marfanoid looking, I'm starting to think dissection. Agree. And the other population uh, is people who have chronic renal insufficiency. They often present with atypical symptoms, and the main cause of death in that population is MI. can be overlooked, and we'll probably get into this later about their biomarkers and the difficulties of interpreting those. But that is a population which gives me a cause for concern always. Okay, so we have to be on the lookout for cocaine, lupus, patients on chronic steroids, chronic renal failure, HIV, especially if they're on protease inhibitors, and pregnant patients. Yeah, it's interesting in pregnant patients. I mean, they're at risk for dissection, 
and and acute coronary syndromes, and pulmonary, and PE, and not, pulmonary and not just PE. Right. You know, we always think PE, 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 but uh, these Correct. are two other diagnoses that we need to think about. Actually, just last month, I had a 30-year-old guy with no cardiac risk factors who presented drenched in sweat with crushing chest pain of abrupt onset. His first ECG was normal. The second ECG showed ST elevation in the inferior leads. I called the interventional cardiologist and he said, that's weird. He's 30 years old. He doesn't have any risk factors. Send him over. We'll see what he's got. So we sent him over and they went in there and they found a clot sitting in his right coronary that they sucked out and they said his, his coronaries were otherwise pretty much pristine. And uh, it turned out that he had been flying back and forth for his work and he had a DVT that went through a big PFO and landed up in his right coronary artery. So he had a paradoxical embolus. We've gone several to, into the coronary, a few into the brain. In fact, most go to the legs yeah. and they present with a cold leg. Yeah. That's how they usually present. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the diagnostic utility of recent cardiac testing for ED patients with chest pain. This lupus patient, this 45-year-old man, uh, had some vague chest pain a month before presentation and had a negative stress test. So, Dr. Pham, how should we interpret a recent negative treadmill stress test or presantine stress test or an angiogram, for that matter, in the setting of an ED patient with chest pain? So uh, unfortunately, we see this not uncommonly that someone's had a recent negative stress test and then they come into an acute MI. And uh, the patient is very frustrated by this because they've been investigated with apparently the best tests and still they come in with their MI. The unfortunate thing about all of these stress tests is they rely on the presence of an obstructive coronary lesion to actually cause ischemia. Often these plaques that rupture and cause acute MI are not flow limiting, although they may be very active and presumably why they're causing chest pain if there's a 40% plaque that's active is that they either have superimposed coronary spasm on top of that leading to transient occlusion or there's a balance between thrombosis and pharmacolysis such that they're having transient occlusion or distal embolization of little microemboli and giving them angina. Fortunately, it's fairly rare that we see this presentation, but the more you practice, the more you, you do see it. So for me, in the emergency room, if the patient's history and the presentation is consistent, I ignore previous stress testing results. I actually don't even care what they show. Having presence of a negative stress test uh, doesn't exclude the disease. Yeah, I think the literature would support that in that the negative likelihood ratio associated with exercise stress testing creates small to moderate changes from pre- to post-test probability for the incidence of disease. So in the presence of a negative stress test, it's not helpful. It doesn't rule out your disease. What Dr. Pham and Menser said about stress tests, that most STEMIs result from the rupture of a plaque that includes far less than 70% stenosis, typically more like 40 or 50%, so that these tests don't necessarily pick up these lesions, the same is true for angiograms. These so-called non-flow limiting lesions of 40 or 50% at the time of angiogram may be significant in causing ischemia from downstream thrombosis or from vasospasm. Also, when it comes to angiograms, it depends on when the angiogram was done. Lesions can progress about 10 to 20% per year and even faster in diabetics. Even if the angiogram was done just a few weeks ago, Chest pain can represent a complication of the angiogram, like dissection of the artery or fibrosis of a metal stent. 
So even a recent negative angiogram in a patient presenting to the ED with a good story for AS does not rule out the diagnosis. Dr. Latovsky puts it quite succinctly. Tests lie all the time. <laughs> right, there is no perfect test besides an autopsy. Right? There is no perfect test. So we've talked about the history, we've talked about atypical presentations, we've talked about traditional and non-traditional risk factors, we've talked about the utility of recent cardiac testing for the likelihood of an ACS and a chest pain patient. Let's go on to the physical examination. Dr. Latovsky, usually the physical examination for patients with ACS is non-contributory. What do you look for on physical examination for patients with presumed ACS? Well, in patients with chest pain in general, you want to look at their vital signs, and particularly if you're worried about dissection, you want to get blood pressures on both sides, looking for a significant difference. You want to really look at JVP, because the standard JVP will point you to either, say, a tension hemothorax or a pericardial effusion or you know, right-sided heart failure or right ventricular infarction. So you want to look at JVP, and you want to really to have, have a good listen to the heart sounds. I mean a really good listen to the heart sounds. And I don't think we do it very well in the emergency department, listening for murmurs and listening for rubs. In the setting of an acute myocardial infarction, a murmur is, is important and can be a hallmark of uh, an acute mitral regurgitation, for example, in inferior MIs. And you want to really have a good listen as in this kind of patient for a rub because uh, you don't want to give somebody with pericarditis uh, a thrombolytic, for example. So you want to really make sure it's quiet in the emergency department. It's difficult to, to have, but you really, in, in the setting of chest pain, you really want to have a good listen to the harmers. I don't think we do a good enough job. And of course, you want to listen to their lung fields to see if there's any evidence of uh, heart failure. So you want to really do a good cardiorespiratory exam. Well, just to echo that, presence of heart failure complicating ACS increases the risk of dying quite a bit, and it's actually one of the components of those risk scores that we may discuss later. So if I get a call that the patient's in heart failure with their anterior MI or inferior MI or whatever, what have you, then I'm much more concerned about them, and we would be much more aggressive with that patient, for example, insertion of lung pump, this type of thing. Okay, so the physical exam of our 45-year-old lupus patient revealed normal vitals except for a slightly low blood pressure of 105 on 65, which was equal in both arms. He had no pulse deficit, normal heart sounds, and no friction rub, no murmur, no JVD, and a clear chest. There was no chest wall tenderness, and examination of his legs revealed no edema and no calf swelling or tenderness. Yeah. I, I don't usually press on their chest to see if there's chest wall tenderness. I have to tell you, it's, I think it's a fairly meaningless test and a fairly meaningless part of the physical examination. Studies have shown that up to 15% of patients with confirmed MIs have chest wall tenderness. I mean, if I pressed on any of your chests, you might be a little sore. So I think it's a pretty meaningless thing to press on someone's chest and say, you know, Mr. Jones, does that hurt? Does that hurt? And, you know, most of the time they'll say yes anyways because you're pressing so hard. Right. So I think that's a pretty meaningless thing to do. So while the physical exam for ACS is often non-contributory, the value of the physical exam in patients who present with chest pain are first to help exclude other diagnoses. For example, look for a pulse deficit or new aortic regurgitation murmur and new neurologic deficit if you suspect aortic dissection. Listen for a unilateral decreased air entry and JVD in tension pneumothorax, and listen for a friction rub, muffle heart sounds, and JVD in pericarditis with tamponade. Secondly, 
The value of the physical exam is to prognosticate an ACS. Look for signs of acute heart failure like JVD, HJR, and S3, crackles on the chest, and peripheral edema. The presence of a new systolic murmur is an ominous sign because it may signify papillary muscle rupture or a flail leaflet of the mitral valve with resultant mitral regurgitation, like Dr. Latovsky was describing. Patients with known aortic stenosis combined with ischemia have a very poor prognosis. So if you diagnose ACS in a patient with critical aortic stenosis, those patients need to be transferred to a tertiary care center as soon as possible. Despite the fact that specific findings of a history and physical exam don't have good predictive value for ACS, don't get too frustrated because studies have shown that ED docs general gestalt after doing a physical history in an ECG for ACS is really quite accurate. So listen to your gut. If you put the whole picture together of the history, physical, and ACG, and you're worried about the patient, listen to your gut and rule out ACS. The the longer I practice emergency medicine, the more atypical presentations of ACS I see, and the more conservative I get in deciding which patients to work up for ACS. On the one hand, if we work up every patient in the emergency department with chest pain or any anginal equivalent, our emergency department's would be filled with patients waiting for their second set of troponins, the stress labs would be overwhelmed by volume, and many patients would end up with false positive results, which may land them up with unnecessary persantines and angiograms with their radiation effects and bleeding complications, etc. Once you start a workup in the ED, it's, it's hard to avoid this sort of cascade of events. How do you decide in the emergency department which patients you're going to work up for ACS in the first place? How do you decide who's going to get an ECG, who's going to get troponin? I mean, I think the history, your, your initial assessment determines everything. You know, patients who come in and, they, you know, they're really vague and they have this kind of pain that lasts just for a few seconds and disappears, you know, or the pain is worse when they move their shoulder. I mean, it's clearly not ischemic. I mean, I, I think there's no point even doing anything for that kind of patient, right? I mean, we really perhaps over-investigate a lot of those kind of patients who clearly do not have an acute coronary syndrome. But, you know, the 50-year-old patient who comes in with an hour of vague pain and it's gone now, could it be acute coronary syndrome? Absolutely. And, and you have really, you don't have any choice but to at least do, you know, a thorough emergency department assessment of that patient's chest pain, which includes standard of care, at this point would include a good physical examination, an electrocardiogram, and then biochemical markers. I think we can't understate the value of serial ECGs because someone can come in with a normal first ECG despite having crushing chest pain and 10, 15 minutes later their STs are up or they have some T-wave inversion. So it, it, I think we don't do enough ECGs and that's what cardiologists, of course, are. that's what they always say. But um, personally, I've seen uh, more than one case where the patient has atypical presentation, not a lot of risk factors, they don't get the ECG, they sit in the waiting room for a while then they finally get their ECG when they start to look sweaty and clammy, and they've got, for example, a STEMI. Yeah, I can't agree more. I mean, the importance of serial ECGs, acute myocardial infarction is a dynamic process. And, and if you if you repeat an ECG 10 times in patients who are infarcting, the ECG will look different every time. It's, mm-hmm. it's an amazing you know, thing. So especially in patients who are having ongoing pain, the value of serial ECGs is very, very important. Agreed. So this patient's ECG showed inferior ST elevation, and the patient went on to have a right-sided ECG to rule out right ventricular involvement. Dr. Latovsky, I see trainees sometimes get mixed up between what a right-sided ECG is, what a 15-lead ECG is, what posterior ECG is. 
and when they're indicated. Can you just run through for us what all of these are, how you do them, and in what situations you would get them? So right side ECG is part of the 15 lead ECG, and the posterior leads are part of the 15 lead ECG. So a 15 lead ECG is your basic 12 lead ECG plus three additional leads, a V4R, a V8, and a V9. So the way you do it is you do your standard 12 lead ECG, and then take off your V4 clip and put it on the right side of the chest in the symmetrical position. And you take off your V5 and your V6 clips and put it on the back in the mid-scapular position and just lateral to the spinous process, and you repeat your ECG. And then instead of V4, V5, V6, you now have V4R, which is your right ventricular lead, V8, V9. The V4R looks to the right side of the heart and is diagnostic of right ventricular infarction, especially in the setting of an acute inferior. And V8 and V9 look at the posterior wall, and if elevated, can be diagnostic of an acute posterior wall infarction, which is often seen in the setting of an inferior myocardial infarction as well. So a 15 lead ECG is indicated in all patients who have an inferior myocardial infarction for a number of reasons. And it's also indicated in patients who present with chest pain and have changes on the anterior septal percordial leads suggestive of a posterior wall MI. For example, in V1 and V2, if you have a tall R wave and ST segment depression and an upright T wave, those changes suggest a true posterior wall MI, and that's the kind of patient you want to do a 15 lead ECG as well. So those are the two major indications for a 15 lead ECG. All inferiors and patients with changes in V1 and V2 suggestive of a true posterior wall myocardial infarction. I agree with what uh, Eric said, and, and I, I think sometimes we cast our net even wider. So anybody with an abnormal 12 lead ECG in whom we're suspicious of an acute coronary syndrome, I'll often ask the nurses to do a 15 lead ECG, and, and our uh, we have this new machine now that has 15 leads on it. So in fact, you don't have to move the leads, you just put on the all 15 leads and you get the 15 lead ECG. So I would add in that I would do that in any abnormal 12 lead ECG to do a 15 lead ECG. And when it comes to looking at the posterior leads, uh, so when Eric was referring to V8 and V9, and, and maybe Dr. Fram could comment on this as well, I tend to use a smaller amount of ST elevation to call it a, a posterior infarction. So uh, instead of the one millimeter, I'll actually consider half a millimeter to be positive in those leads. So this is very timely for me because at 3.30 in the morning yesterday, your colleague, Dr. Hahn, called me about a patient who's having ongoing chest pain, ST depression, V1 through V3, no tall R wave. And the tall wave is really just a Q wave in the posterior wall. So he didn't have that yet, but he had ST depression and his pain wasn't getting better with nitromorphine. I think that fact that the pain is unremitting despite the usual treatment should really make you think this is a posterior MI. And so sure enough, they did the 15 lead and there was one millimeter ST elevation V8, V9, which is all you need. I mean, I really view those leads as limb leads. I mean, you have to, there's more soft tissue to get through to get actually any ST changes. So if there's anything, even half a millimeter with a consistent history then, and sure enough, uh, this patient's uh, circumflex was occluded. And you know, those posterior MIs are not uncommonly silent on the ECG. So if they have changes, and this is actually quite a big SERP, you'd be surprised. Uh, but some patients, uh, we always actually tell the residents that if the history is consistent, the ECG is silent, think posterior MI or posterolateral MI, and they should go to the cath lab. So everyone agrees that the absolute indications for a 15-lead ECG are either an inferior MI or 
ST depression in V1 or V2, indicating a possible posterior MI. The literature is a little bit mixed in terms of extending the indication to patients with nonspecific changes or any other suspicion of MI. Well, one study showed that the 15 lead ECG provided a more accurate description of myocardial injury in those patients with MI, yet failed to alter rates of diagnosis or use of reperfusion therapy or to change disposition locations. There was another study that looked at a more select population of ED patients, and they used a 15 lead ECG in chest patients with a moderate to high pretest probability of MI who were already identified as candidates for hospital admission. In that study, they showed that there was a 12% increase in sensitivity with no loss of specificity for the diagnosis of STEMI. And they concluded that the findings of ST segment elevation by use of the extra leads can strengthen the ED diagnosis of MI on the initial tracing and may provide an indication for reperfusion therapy. I'd love to hear your comments, the listeners, whether you do 15-lead ECGs outside of the usual indications of inferior MI or possible posterior MI. I'd just like to make one more point, and that is the, uh, the subtle inferior MI. So the limb leads, we look for one millimeter, but really you have to look at the ST segment very closely. There's many early inferior MIs that have half a millimeter with very subtle reciprocal ST depression 1 and AVL, which is very often missed because it's very subtle. But if the history is classic and they have that, or if they have hypercute T waves in the anterior leads, I think you should treat that patient aggressively. You may not want to give them thrombolysis, but at least in Toronto and many urban centers now in Canada, we have ready access to primary PCI. We believe the time is muscle. Sending that patient is probably the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I just a, a, also a few months ago, I had a postpartum woman, one week postpartum. She was 30 years old, another young patient who presented immediately after she had chest pain. She had hyperacute T waves and nothing else on the ECG. And then as we were talking, the value of serial ECGs, we did serial ECGs and she had a STEMI. Yeah, that's right. T-wave changes may be the first sign of ischemia on the cardiogram. Not only the the PT waves, but the shape of the T-wave changes. Like a normal T-wave has a slow ascending up or kind of rapid descent. And often what happens in the first sign of ischemia is that T-waves will become symmetrical. Not only peak, but symmetrical. Change their shape. And there'll be J-point elevation. Correct. Correct. I can see Dr. Latovsky's getting excited now that we're talking about ECGs. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about ECGs. What does a normal ECG tell us about the likelihood of MI in a patient presenting to the ED with chest pain or anginal equivalent? A normal, all a normal ECG tells you is that the patient doesn't require a thrombolytic then and there. That's the only thing a normal ECG can really tell you in the emergency department. It doesn't rule out acute coronary syndrome, doesn't rule out a STEMI. So the only thing that it tells you is that you've got some time to buy because the patient doesn't need a thrombolytic then in there because it doesn't, you know, to receive a thrombolytic, the patient needs ST segment elevation. Uh, so that's the only thing a normal ECG tells you initially in the emergency department. Okay, so it's about 7% of MIs uh, will have a normal ECG. Absolutely, non-STEMIs. Okay. Well, much of the ST elevation we see on ECGs represents true STEMIs. There's many other causes of ST elevation that, that represent other serious pathologies and benign pathologies. 
can you just review for us what the differential that you go through in your mind of ST elevation is and some of the pearls on how to distinguish the different causes? Well, in, in the presence of chest pain, the most obvious other cause of ST segment elevation is pericarditis. And the other cause of ST segment elevation that's often, often misdiagnosed as acute myocardial infarction is left ventricular hypertrophy, which normally causes a millimeter or two of ST segment elevation V1. And it's often a cause for inappropriate use of thrombolytics in patients with chest pain and, and non ischemic chest pain. But in this particular patient with lupus, where you're already thinking about pericarditis, that's you know that's the classical, you know that's the classic case where there's diffuse SD segment elevation as well. And to differentiate the ECG of pericarditis from the ECG of of a transmural STEMI, uh, in pericarditis you usually get diffuse extensive SD segment elevations. You don't get the reciprocal changes that you get in STEMI. Um, you get PR segment depression, usually leads to in V6. Usually maintain your T waves, you don't obliterate your T waves like you do in STEMI. The morphology of the ST segment can vary significantly as opposed to concave uh, elevation that you get in pericarditis, you get you know convex elevation in STEMIs. There's a lot of different differentiating features of pericarditis from the STEMI, but the most important thing is the diffuse nature of the ST segment elevation and the lack of reciprocal changes in pericarditis. There's one other nice little clue comparing the ST elevation in uh, lead two versus lead three. Exactly. In acute myocardial infarction, well, you can get ST segment elevation right across the inferior leads, but in acute inferior myocardial infarction, the ST segment elevation in lead three is usually greater than it is in lead two. In pericarditis, it's just a reverse. In pericarditis, usually the ST segment elevation in lead two is greater than it is in lead three. The other clinical pearl we often use if there's ST elevation in leads one and lead two, it's not going almost, to be an MI. Correct. It's almost always that has to be pericarditis. Right. You you can't anatomically have an MI mm -hmm. with ST segment in lead one and two. I mean that's that's just anatomically and physiologically impossible. The other entity I would add to that list is early repolarization or so-called normal variant, particularly in young muscular guys who come in with chest pain after lifting too much weight or perhaps using steroids as well. Uh, they have ST elevation in the anterior leads, but they have no reciprocal ST depression in the inferior leads. We keep a list of false positive cath lab activation, and I'd say the top ones are pericarditis, early repolarization, left funnel branch block, non-STEMI uh, non often gets sent, and then the rest is a grab bag of you know, stress, cardiomyopathy, and other funny things. One other uh, point just to add into the pericarditis uh, discussion um, would be uh, PR segments. Uh, so PR segment depression lead two and PR segment elevation in lead AVR as other uh, signs of pericarditis. Now, because the pericarditis are such a... Often you can have atypical uh, ECGs in pericarditis where there are actually some reciprocal changes, which throws everything off. And so at least in an academic center where we have residents in-house, what we'll have them do is come and do an echo stat. And if there's really no wall-motion abnormalities at all, and it's particularly regional wall-motion abnormalities, then the sensitivity of that to rule out a disease is fairly good. And uh, if the history sounds like pericarditis, then we won't activate the cath lab. Dr. Latovsky, I know you had a case of a patient who presented with chest pain to the emergency department who had finding us on their ECG of both MI and pericarditis. Correct. Just tell had, us a little bit about that story. That's right. So he came in with severe chest pain, but it clearly was pleuric in nature. 
And his ECG was it was quite interesting because he had diffuse ST signal elevation, he had PR segment depression, lead two and V six. So he had classical change of progratus, but he also had convex ST segment elevation in the anterior bracorial leads. And for the questioning, he, he had had an episode of chest pain about two or three or four days earlier that had radiating down the right arm that just had spontaneously resolved. So we have to remember that sometimes in the early post-infarct period, you can get a transient pericarditis. So he was a gentleman who presented with a post-myocardial infarction and pericarditis. So not all pericarditis is post-viral. We have to remember some, sometimes you can get post-MI pericarditis. Right. That's in distinction to Dresler syndrome, which is, which is the which pericarditis is, that happens weeks later. Correct, that, six weeks later. That Dr. Femme and his mm-hmm. colleagues see correct. quite often, but we pretty much never see. Correct. So this patient had a right-sided ECG, which did show a half a millimeter of ST elevation in V4R. How does this change your management of this patient? That's got diagnostic implications. It's got prognostic implications. It's got therapeutic implications. Prognostically, right ventricular infarction in the setting of acute inferior MI increases the risk dramatically. And if that patient goes reperfused, there's extremely high mortality in that patient, 30 40% very high mortality. So it has extremely important prognostic implications, uh, diagnostic implications. It's got therapeutic implications in that patients who have right ventricular infarctions are preload dependent. So you really need to avoid any medication that can reduce their preload. So you, that kind of patient, you need to avoid giving nitrates. You need to, give giving, you need to avoid giving morphine or fentanyl. Of course, you need to avoid giving beta blockers too, only because those kind of patients tend to be tend to develop bradycardia as an AV blocks. So you really want to avoid giving nitrates and morphine to those patients, and you might want to, you know, sort of give them additional preload with some fluid if their pressure is borderline. But you definitely want to avoid the preload uh, drugs. I would just add that you know RVMI is usually a clinical diagnosis. So if they have elevated JVP, clear chest and low blood pressure, and they're kind of bradycardic and looking sort of vagal, if I hear that story over the phone, I'm much more concerned about that patient than just isolated ST elevation and V4R with none of the other findings. And they probably already had some nitro, and they haven't dropped their blood pressure. So if they're not behaving like an RVMI, then in isolation, that ECG finding is less concerning to me. It may correlate with something on their angiogram, but... As far as the clinical presentation management, if they're behaving like one and the EC doesn't show ST elevation in V4, I don't really care. Yeah, in, in fact, the, the, you know, if you speak to some of the older cardiologists before we started doing all these 15 ECGs, they would tell you that if you gave somebody with an acute inferior MI and nitrates and their yeah. blood pressure dropped, yeah. it was absolutely pathognomonic of right ventricular infarction. Mm-hmm. Well, then, and there actually is literature to support that. Yeah. We know that the, when you give nitrates to drop their pressure, that you have to be on the hunt for a right ventricular MI. Any more comments about our lupus patient? In retrospect, it's pretty unusual for MI to present with only with pleuritic chest pain. You know, pretty, pretty, pretty atypical. Atypical, atypical is typical. All right, let's move on to case number two. The second case is that of an 86-year-old woman living independently with a history of hypertension who presents to your emergency department with a four-hour history of shortness of breath and vague abdominal discomfort that started abruptly while she was getting out of bed. 
She has no chest pain, no nausea, no dizziness, no sweating, no cough, no fever, no change in her chronic ankle swelling, and no PND or orthopnea. She takes Lasix for chronic ankle swelling and Altase for her hypertension. There are no other cardiac risk factors besides hypertension and no thromboembolic risk factors. On physical exam, she appears well, but in mild respiratory distress. Her vitals are a heart rate of 105 and regular, a blood pressure of 160 on 95, equal in both arms, a respiratory rate of 24, an O2 sat of 93%, and a temp of 36.5. She has no pulse deficit and her JVP can't be seen. Her chest exam reveals bibasilar crackles and there's no audible S3 or S4. There's mild pitting edema, but no calf swelling or tenderness. On abdominal examination, her bowel sounds are present with no tenderness and no palpable mass. A bedside ultrasound shows no pericardial effusion and no AAA. ASA 160 milligrams is given to chew. Nitro 0.4 milligrams sublingual is given and 40 milligrams of IV Lasix is ordered. Her ECG shows sinus tachycardia with a left bundle branch block pattern that was not present on her previous ECG. Before we get into the details of this case, can you review for us some of the differences in presentation of ACS in the elderly that are highlighted by this case? Elderly patients who present with ACS are, are high risk. The fact that this patient is presenting in heart failure should give you a cause for concern. A common misperception in older patients is that they don't respond as well to the treatments that we have to offer, but actually this population derives the greatest absolute benefit of treatment for ACS. The downside is they also have the highest absolute risk of complications, so it's a bit of a balance between the two. But as you mentioned at the beginning, this patient is living independently in the community and should not be denied access to standard of care, including invasive care, if appropriate. Remember that more than half of elderly patients with ACS will present with atypical symptoms like dyspnea, nausea, or abdominal pain. These patients' workup and care for their ACS is often delayed, and meds or invasive strategies are often not done for fear of complications, despite the fact that these are the patients who will benefit most from their interventions, as Dr. Pham mentioned. Next, we're going to talk about left bundle branch block and some pearls in the setting of possible ACS. So this patient had a left bundle branch block. Dr. Pham, while presume new left bundle branch block in the setting of a good clinical history for MI is one of the indications for thrombolysis or PCI according to the AHA guidelines, the literature shows us, and any experienced cardiologist who follows these patients knows that, in fact, only a small proportion of these patients actually have an MI. About, about one-third of these patients will actually rule in for an MI. And the SCARBOSA criteria, where if you fulfill some of these ECG criteria that will outline in the written summary, you can diagnose MI in the setting of left bundle branch block with these uh, SCARBOSA criteria they're only seen in a very small minority of these patients who present to the ED with uh, possible MI and left bundle branch block. Should we be changing our practice of activating the cath lab or, or giving lytics for patients with presumed new left bundle branch block with a good story for MI who don't fulfill the SCARBOSA criteria? I think that's a good question. These patients are, are very difficult to work up and manage because the truth is the majority of these patients are not having acute MI. And as mentioned earlier, left bundle branch block patients are on the list of our false positive cath lab activation, i.e. they come as an MI and the arteries are normal. 
Having said that, if the history is consistent and she's got heart failure and she's tachycardic for no other apparent reason, I would personally advocate that we do transfer these patients. You can decide whether you'd like to give thrombolytic or PCI in this patient, and we can discuss that later. The one diagnostic tool which may be helpful in these patients, again, is ready access to a bedside echo. The problem is, with left frontal branch block, you'll often get abnormal septal motion because of the conduction abnormality, and you may mistake that for this being an anterior wall motion abnormality. So if the echo wall motion is entirely normal, then you may think, and the history is not entirely typical, then you may not activate the cath lab or consider thrombolysis for that mm -hmm. patient. The problem is all the trials for acute MI done in the 70s and 80s included new or presumed new left frontal branch block as an inclusion criteria. But the number of patients that I've seen, at least, end up having a coronary occlusion I can count on probably one hand. You feel good when you transfer those patients and find out they did have an MI because you said, I'm glad I didn't just write this patient off. Right. So, so those patients who have MI and left frontal mm -hmm. branch block are mm -hmm. actually at very high risk, right? Uh, they're at higher risk than not having left bundle branch block, but it's right. actually the patients who've got right bundle branch block which are at higher risk than the left bundle. Because right bundle, usually they have anterior MI and it's usually proximal LAD. So it's a bit of a trivia question uh, in cardiology, but actually new right bundle with anterior MI is higher risk than new left bundle causing MI. Oh, there's a pearl. Yeah. I really like that idea of getting a cardiologist read bedside echo done during business hours, of course, this is probably the only time that this could happen mm -hmm. for a patient who presents with left bundle branch block with maybe not such a good story and you're trying to sort out whether this could actually be an MI because as you said, if it's a perfectly normal echo, then that makes it extremely unlikely to, to actually be an MI. But well, it's but it's not going to be a perfect, It's not going to be a perfect, not she, be she's in heart. You know she's in heart failure. She's at least kill up two shock, right? She's at least kill up two. She's got rails there. So... You know it's not going to be a perfecto, so I'm still not convinced how that's going to help you in the emergency department to decide to reperfusion. Okay. You know it's not going to be a normal here's, here's one So for this, so for this patient, for this particular patient, for this particular patient, we've got someone in heart failure. So right. this patient, we're going to be aggressive about and and try and reperfuse because of the heart failure, most likely. So well, that that brings up the question, and it, perhaps it's one extra level of complexity. But I work in a center that's two hours away from a PCI center. So for us, there's a lot more involved in that. We have to transfer the patient down for PCI, and the question comes up because of where we are relative to PCI. We would actually enter this patient into a pharmacoinvasive protocol that would be involving lytics and then transport and having PCI done within six hours. This is the transfer AMI protocol that Warren Cantor authored a couple of years ago now and formed the basis for the AHA guidelines. So it was referenced in those guidelines. And in that circumstance where, and, and we don't have readily available bedside echo that's done by a technologist and read by a cardiologist. We just don't have that immediately available. So how do we address these patients if you're two hours from PCI and you have a left bundle, you're not really sure, should we be doing the pharmacoinvasive protocol, meaning giving this elderly patient who's 85 lytics, so there's an increased risk of bleed, uh, it may not be an underlying MI, as you've, uh, as Dr. Pham has already alluded to. So uh, I'd be interested on your comments as to what you think we should be doing in, in Huntsville, recognizing that perhaps you're influencing your colleagues that we refer to. If we say the chance that this patient actually has an acute MI is 
maybe 20 or 25 percent, and you accept that the risk of intracranial hemorrhage, which will probably be fatal for this patient, is perhaps 2 percent because she's old with hypertension, plus the fact that because of that risk, there are acceptable delays to PCI uh, that are not the door to balloon in 90 minutes that we always talk about. You know, two hours, two and a half hours is probably okay for this woman, as long as you're also administering aspirin and clopidogrel and some form of aspirin. All the adjunctive therapies on yeah. board, let's say. Yeah. Well, I would suggest, in fact, not only are there risks to this woman, but I, there aren't the perceived benefits. If you, if, First of all, her symptomatology had been more than four or five hours, so the benefits of thrombolytic in this particular scenario are close to zero. Second of all, she's in heart failure. Thrombolytics actually have never been proven to be a benefit in patients with acute myocardial infarction and KILIP3 to KILIP4 heart failure anyways. For sure. So not only is there a risk giving her thrombolytic, there's actually no proven benefit to giving this woman a thrombolytic anyways. And as, as, as someone who's a proponent to thrombolytics in certain situations, this is not somebody I would even give a thrombolytic to because there wouldn't be any benefit to this mm-hmm. woman. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's an interesting point because uh, well, we're, we're looking at a four-hour history so the delay before presentation, as well as the three-hour delay to get to the PCI table. So now you're at seven hours. Is there any benefit from this patient not receiving lytics, as uh, Dr. Lutowski suggests, and still going on for uh, subsequent PCI, Dr. Fan? I think that this is a patient you want to get out of your emergency department, because if she's going down the tubes, you want that to happen, hopefully, in the cardiac center, where they have access to mechanical support, balloon pump, etc., rather than this happening in your ED. Yeah. I'd give her, as Neil suggests, I'd give her everything else. You know, you want to treat her heart failure. And she's hypertensive with her heart failure, so you want to be aggressive with preload reduction with nitrates, afterload reduction with nitrates. You know, I'd put this woman on IV nitroglycerin drip at high doses for the afterload reduction. Be aggressive with antiplatelet medication. Be aggressive with anti-thrombotic medication. Everything. Throw everything else at her and then, you know, transfer her. Uh, a discussion between cardiology and, and the ER about individual cases of left bone branch block will help you to make a more informed decision on individual patients. That's how I was going to wrap up this part, actually, exactly, is when you have a patient with left bundle branch block and you're not sure, get your cardiologist on the phone. There's one more added complication that I just wanted to mention when it comes to left bundle branch block in the setting of a patient with a possible ACS. The AHA guidelines say that in a patient with new left bundle branch block, so you look at the old ECG and it doesn't show left bundle branch block, and now they present to the emergency room with chest pain, let's say, and they have a left bundle branch block, if they have a good story, then that's an indication for reperfusion therapy. Now, there's been some recent literature that challenges the assumption that a new left bundle branch block is more likely to be an MI than an old left bundle branch block. The first of these studies was from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2009 called Lack of Association Between Left Bundle Branch Block and Acute Myocardial Infarction in Symptomatic ED Patients. It took almost 8,000 patients with chest pain or chest pain equivalent and followed them up in 30 days. And what they found was that patients with new left bundle branch block or old left bundle branch block both had about a 7% chance of ruling in for MI. So there was no difference. A more recent study from this year in the American Heart Journal called Outcomes in Patients with Chronicity of Left Bundle Branch Block with Possible Acute Myocardial Infarction looked at 400 consecutive patients with left bundle branch block with chest pain or chest pain equivalent and looked at the incidence of MI and 30-day mortality. 
about two-thirds had new left bundle branch block versus about one-third had old left bundle branch block. And in this study, about one-third of patients ruled in for MI whether or not they had an old versus new left bundle branch block. And there was no difference in size of infarct between patients with old left bundle branch block or new left bundle branch block. So when it comes to left bundle branch block, remember that only about one third of patients with presumed new left bundle branch block who present with chest pain or anginal equivalent will rule in for MI. And the chance of ruling in for MI is no different to patients with known old left bundle branch block. So we should probably discuss lytics or PCI with our cardiologist before making any decision. One exception is if they fulfill the Scarbosa criteria, and that is really quite specific for MI, and those patients should probably get lytics or emergent PCI. We'll review the Scarbosa criteria in the written summary. Next, we're going to talk about diagnosing MI in patients with a pace ventricular rhythm. The ECG for left bundle branch block, in terms of interpretation of MI, is similar to interpreting the possibility of MI in a patient who has a ventricular pacer. Dr. Mincer, can you just go over for us how we should be interpreting ECGs in a patient with possible ACS who has a ventricular pacer? First of all, it is difficult to, to interpret ACS in the presence of a pace rhythm, but not impossible. And sometimes I'll say that's a pitfall of emergency physicians to totally disregard the paced ECG saying that we can't see it or we shouldn't look for it. And I, and I think we should. It's not as easy or straightforward as looking at a, at a regular 12-lead ECG. And essentially what you're looking for is a discordant ST elevation uh, greater than five millimeters or looking for ST elevation uh, one millimeter or greater in concordant ST elevation. So uh, concordant is where the um, ST elevation is in the same direction as the overall polarity of the QRS complex, and discordant obviously is opposite. So those are the Scarbosa criteria that we use for left bundle branch block as well. Right. I just want to back up a little bit and ask about interpreting ECGs in general in elderly patients with a possible MI. How, how does the interpretation of an ECG in elderly patients differ from those in younger patients with a possible MI? Well, one of the reasons, a lot of older folks, especially if they have a history of chronic hypertension, may have left ventricular hypertrophy. So they may already have some ST segment elevations, mild ST segment elevations in V1, V2. So that makes it hard. They may already have some pre-existing systolic dysfunction. They may already have a pre-existing left bundle branch block, as we discussed. They may already have some non-specific changes. It's rare for you know an 80-year-old to have a completely normal cardiogram. So it just they're more often than not to have some changes on their electrocardiogram. And often uh, they'll show up and they'll have Q waves. They could have had previous cell in MI or previous MI in general. And the other population I haven't mentioned that we see in the cath lab who come to us as possible MI is atypical presentation Q waves with persistent ST elevation from their aneurysm that they didn't know they had or, you know, they can't give you the history, and you find a chronic occlusion. So I think it's, it's quite true. Older patients are more likely to have abnormal ECG. So how does age affect the ECG interpretation in the setting of ACS? Well, non-diagnostic ECGs are much more common, and left bundle branch block, as in this case, is more common, as well as LVH, which can both obscure and or delay the diagnosis of ACS. The other thing to know is that STEMI is less likely in the elderly than it is in the young. 
they are less likely to manifest ST elevation on an ECG when they have an MI. That marks the end of part one of this episode. Please go on to part two where we'll talk about cardiac markers, medications in ACS, a discussion of when thrombolytics might be better than PCI, some pearls on workup and disposition of low-risk chest pain patients, and a couple more interesting cases.